Welcome to Discovery and Inspiration, a podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Robert Newman, President and Director of the Center, and your host for this episode. Between the 1930s and the 1970s, citizens in the United States were undergoing a transformation. New Deal policies and an upswell in Black migration to the North led to overcrowding, state-sanctioned segregation, and urban renewal efforts that included the construction of large public housing projects. As these changes were taking place, African-American writers naturally began incorporating them in their work. And these segregated spaces provide the setting for a significant body of literature, notably in the poetry and fiction of Black women writers, that has largely gone unexamined. Our guest today is Jennifer Williams, professor of English from Howard University. This year, as a fellow at the National Humanities Center, Jennifer has been working on a new book considering the work of these women writers and how it speaks to the experience of African-Americans in the mid-20th century. So welcome, Jennifer. Thank you, Robert. So I want to ask you first, um, we're in roughly the 50th anniversary of the Fair Housing Act. Sketch for us, if you would, where we are now versus where we were then. So I've been thinking about this a lot lately, especially in light of some protests by Black mothers in Oakland for fair housing. And then also, even closer to us in Durham, there is a housing project called McDougal Homes, where residents had to spend a great amount of time in hotels recently because of the unlivable circumstances of their housing projects. And so in my mind, I was thinking, oh, well, this is really interesting that we're in 2020 and the Fair Housing Act was passed in 1968. And still we see some similar divisions in terms of not only poor people and people of color living in uninhabitable living conditions, but also in terms of the color lines that have been constructed in major urban spaces still being set into place. People are still living in housing units that were in the same neighborhoods (laughs) that were kind of drawn out between the 30s and the 60s. And so with the passing of the Housing Act, it opened up more possibilities for people to get mortgage loans and to move in different areas. But at times, these color lines didn't move at the same pace as the laws moved. So the laws might have changed, but the the lines demarcating Black spaces and white spaces and cities didn't change as quickly as the laws changed. Precisely. So let's talk about that demarcation in the historical setting for your project, which is the 1930s to the 1970s. And of course, during this time, we have, as was mentioned, Black Northern migration in response to Southern Jim Crow laws and radical transformations going on in U.S. cities. Can you kind of elaborate on that historical setting a bit more for us, please? Yeah, so I start in the 30s because um, one of my writers, Marita Bonner, is envisioning her imaginative fiction creating what she calls a black map of an area in Chicago. 
and contemporaneous with her imaginary projection are zoning laws that are happening in Chicago as well as redlining practices that start taking shape in the 1930s. And so in my mind, I was thinking, oh, maybe she's thinking uh, about a counter mapping strategy to all of these other kinds of strategies put into place by planners and then also sociologists, urban reformers, and the ways that they were uh, spatializing the city according to racial groups. So perhaps this writer is thinking of a different way of imagining the city that doesn't involve all of these boundary spaces based upon racial and class differences. A lot of our listeners are, will be familiar with Toni Morrison, with Gwendolyn Brooks, with Lorraine Hansberry, all of whom you cover uh, in your project. But one of the great revelations in your project is bringing to light some lesser known writers like Marita Bonner and Margaret Walker. Can you talk a bit more about them and why they've been neglected to date? Yeah, it's pretty amazing how few people have written about Marita Bonner considering she was one of the most published short fiction writers in the 1930s and early 40s. Um, she published in two of the most famous journals during what most people call the Harlem Renaissance, The Crisis and Opportunity Magazine. And I think that part of the reason for the neglect is that she doesn't fit very comfortably within just Harlem Renaissance literature or what now has been termed as the Chicago Renaissance between the 30s and the late 40s. And usually that period is usually attributed uh, strongly to the work of Richard Wright. And so Bonner's Harlem Renaissance fiction slides into the 30s and 40s, but also because she's writing short fiction and not novels, I think that has to do with a critical neglect of her too. Similarly with Margaret Walker, who is one of the pioneers of the Chicago Renaissance, she wrote poetry at a time that Wright is becoming really famous from his novel, Native Son. And so part of the way I'm thinking about intimate cities too is sometimes in, in terms of form, these int more intimate forms like poetry and short fiction might also give us a different kind of microscopic way to look at Black interiors and interiority than something like a novel that is supposed to be representative of Black people as a mass group. Right. So I want to interrogate that a little bit more with you. And uh, I want to draw on one of the words in your title, intimate. I'd like you to unpack that a little bit more for us and, and explain the concept behind your project. You're dealing with an aesthetics of intimacy. What does that mean? Yeah, an aesthetics of intimacy is a, a terminology I use to talk about materially going inside of urban houses as an intimate space, and then also thinking about Black life in an affective way. So thinking about emotion, thinking about the psychological trauma that is experienced by living in kinds of precarious spaces, either economically or 
dealing with like uninhabitable living spaces as well, dealing with issues such as urban Jim Crow and the resultant violence and death because part of what's happening in these spaces, they're not just crowded and uninhabitable, but they also are toxic. Quite often living in these spaces, there are sources of tuberculosis, <laughs> you know, there's different kinds of um, other exposure to, and this is also a way that you can kind of see a relationship between our contemporary moment and the past too. So. I'm thinking about Flint <laughs> all of a sudden as I'm talking about these aesthetics of intimacy and living in housing where the water is undrinkable. So this is, you know, this is another way that I'm using intimate space to kind of map between the past and the present. So the notion of interiority and pain being inside of space, but then also inside of this kind of emotional space that these figures are living within. This is also a period we get the Moynihan report, we get Michael Harrington's The Other America. So what kind of influence do we do we have from those reports and, and the various reports that are going on during um, leading up to the Civil Rights Act? How are your writers, the writers that you're depicting, that you're covering, responding to those kinds of policy and governmental reports? Uh, another writer that I'm trying to recuperate, Kristen Hunter Latney of Philadelphia, responds to the Moynihan Report in an amazingly humorous way, actually. <laughs> she parodies the idea of urban matriarchy by, she creates this kind of theater out of these housing spaces. And so she literally takes readers into this and, and, and makes a mockery of this notion that there is a matriarchy in place in Black communities. With writers like June Jordan, one of the things that she is proposing in her architectural imagination is the complete abolition of the ghetto, period. She has this idea of a different way to house people who have been disenfranchised and dispossessed by the kinds of failed attempts at public housing during the 60s in New York. So she envisions this almost futuristic space that can house all of the displaced Harlemites. It's called Sky Rise to Harlem. It's really crazy. But one of the things that's most radical about it is that within her architectural imagination, she also envisions the abolition of the ghetto. And for some people, they're like, what? Like, are you going to just completely just tear it down and start over? And in some ways, she actually is thinking, yes, because in order if one is going to leave this space standing, then that means that racial segregation is going to remain a reality in spaces like New York, that Harlem will, will always remain a city within a city, that people will never have equal access to outside spaces and to infrastructure and to transportation. And so, with Michael Harrington, actually, she's kind of thinking about and kind of like 
revisiting the language of abolition to talk about ways that one can actuate a kind of freedom through access to space, a freedom that never really occurred after abolition, the, the first abolition, right? Yeah, and you're also, in, in your considerations of uh, space and spatial aesthetics, you're also sort of navigating the public versus the private sphere and how gender plays a role in those boundaries and the transgression of those boundaries. Can you talk about that a little bit, please? One of the things that that becomes really clear when one looks at the intimate spaces in Black urban life is that the purported division between the public and private sphere doesn't exist in these spaces. Quite often, the private spaces where Black working class people are living are public. Sometimes they're spaces of sociality in which people make a social life. They turn conditions of containment into something else, into spaces of congregation, into spaces of sociality. So they become public in that way. But then also by writing about private spaces, these writers are kind of opening the curtains and drawing open the curtains and opening windows and opening up these private spaces to public consumption, which can be tricky. One writer whose work I'm building on, uh, Candace Jenkins, made a remark about the vulnerability of Black private spaces because it so often is uh, scrutinized by sociological studies and policed and legislated with laws like Monaghan. So it's very tricky when you're exposing the private spaces of already vulnerable populations to the public. But that is, in a sense, what these writers are doing, but not just so outsiders can look (laughs) and become voyeurs, right? But by exposing uninhabitable living conditions, they're trying to enact change. You did a lot of archival research for this project. Can you tell our listeners a bit about the archives that you delved into and what you found? Yeah, well, luckily, the Schlesinger Archives has a great deal of materials digitized, including um, some of Marita Bonner's papers. I also went and looked at Margaret Walker's papers, Gwendolyn Brooks's, uh, some of her archives in Berkeley. One interesting thing I was able to do when I was looking at Margaret Walker's work is read some of the draft of a novel that she wanted to publish about Black urban life in Chicago and women sort of around the time that Richard Wright was writing Native Son, Margaret Walker was working on a novel called Goose Island, which was never published. And similar to Bonner, she was interested in this multi-ethnic Chicago ghetto as a space to kind of think about a kind of story mapping or literary mapping. And I wondered if she had published her work as a novel, would she have gotten more attention? But I did find it an interesting way to kind of rethink about the 30s in Chicago through the lens of Black womanhood instead of, instead of thinking about it in the conventional ways that we think about it 
it offers a different way to think about this kind of insurgence of leftist activism that happens in the 30s when women are placed in the center, um, women like Margaret Walker and Marita Bonner, and then even afterwards, Lorraine Hansberry, that was really interesting for me. And there are some, there's still more archives I would, I would like to kind of cull through. <laughs> As a concluding question, let me ask you, you talked about how so many of the writers that you're examining hoped that their work would be kind of a call to action. So I wanna ask you about this particular book project and what your hopes for it are in terms of filling gaps and also a call to action. I wanna draw the curtain back in a way to shed more light on how this period in Black women's literary history is doing a kind of ecological and social justice work that really shapes the ways that we've come to think about housing, civil rights, the ways that Black Lives Matter and don't matter in our contemporary moment. A lot of the struggles for civil rights and racial equality have to do with having access to livable and adequate living spaces, even in our contemporary moment that activists are reminding us that housing is a human right. It's sort of terrible that we have to be reminded of that. I made an um, brief mention of Moms for Housing, which is a contemporary group of mothers and women in California who are taking over abandoned housing right now as a form of social justice activism. And I see a through line from women like Ann Petrie, who wasn't just a writer, but who also protested with women in Harlem about housing. And so if anything, I want to get across in this book is that Black access to livable and humane living spaces is important. You see kind of a blueprint for something bigger. You see a blueprint for for housing activism and ecological activism that's happening now in the work of these mid-century Black women writers. Great, and we hope that your project has that effect. Thank you, Jennifer Williams, and thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. If you'd like to learn more about our programs and our mission, please go to nationalhumanitycenter.org. I'm Robert Newman. Please join us again for the next episode of Discovery and Inspiration from the National Humanities Center.